For Arizona Public Media, I'm Leslie Tolbert, Regents Professor in Neuroscience at the University of Arizona, and this is Arizona Science. Today our guest is Todd Vanderaa, Professor and Head of the Department of Pharmacology. Todd studies the biological mechanisms that cause chronic pain and has a special interest in the intersection between chronic pain and addiction to opioid drugs. Welcome, Todd. Thank you. How is neuropathic pain different from, say, the immediate pain when I cut my finger? Uh, Neuropathic pain is something that really, uh, over the last, let's say, 10 or 15 years, has become almost like a pathology itself. And the fact that the nerves themselves become hypersensitive. And so often simple things like a cut or something, often it will heal and you won't get neuropathic pain. However, in some individuals, what happens is the nerves overreact and they become like hypersensitive. And for some reason, they don't sort of shut down or turn off. And they continue to bring that information into the central nervous system, even if the pathology is healed. This can last weeks, months, years, and for a lifetime. And so it can be very devastating to certain people. Why does it occur in some people and not in others? Are there genetic or life history differences? Um, So this is exactly where sort of the level of research is. And so many people are trying to determine uh, why people don't have neuropathic pain. In other words, after you do have sort of your acute uh, damage or injury, why do most people actually have that pain sort of resolve? And so we're looking at a number of different things, whether it's a genetic. uh, Often it can be sort of what we call epigenetics, meaning that maybe something earlier in life occurred uh, and set it up, but it didn't occur causing neuropathic pain. But then later in life, you had that re-exposure, sort of like what they call a double hit. And that re-exposure, then the uh, nervous system became hyper-excitable. And so it continued to fire over and over again. And you've told me that pain syndromes are especially prominent in women compared to men? Yes. Another very interesting uh, area of research in which, of course, the National Institutes of Health have asked that all researchers really look at both male and females. And so uh, this has really been now going on in the field of pain for a good 10 or 15 years with some really great uh, science being found in the fact that some types of chronic pain and neuropathic pain are more often seen in females versus males. And so Things like fibromyalgia will also be uh, more, uh, more often will be seen in females than males. And is that related to hormone status? Yeah. Uh, so there tends to be a lot of uh, evidence now coming out that it may actually be related to the levels of estrogen. And so and what's interesting about that is that it's not necessarily an increase or a decrease. It's actually a change. And so in our own work, when looking at migraine, we see that uh, some animals may have more headache and what we think of as a migraine uh, when estrogen levels go up. But then there's an equal number of uh, animals that would actually have a uh, as estrogen comes down, actually also experience behavioral signs of an actual headache. And so it's changes or the fluctuation that we think may actually cause some of these uh, chronic or neuropathic pains. So you do your studies in what animal? Yeah, so we do studies in both rats and mice, uh, looking because we need that full nervous system uh, to be able to know whether an animal is experiencing these types of pain. And of course, our goal is to try to figure out what are the molecular targets in order to inhibit that pain. And so we look at these targets, we try to develop new and novel compounds that will act at these, uh, as well as even uh, new therapies that may modulate them, uh, not necessarily even using drugs, because we know that there's a lot of incidences with medications and side effects and problems. And so we've actually looked at therapies 
activities, whether it's nutrition, exercise, and a recent study even looking at different wavelengths of light or music that may actually alter the amount of neuronal activity. So you've said that you're looking at cannabinoid receptors uh, that don't trigger the flood of dopamine that is the brain's reward system. That would suggest that you could have a huge impact on uh, working on uh, opioid addiction. Recently, there's been several publications that have come out, most of them coming actually from the National Institutes of, of Health themselves, in which the Elliott Gardner has shown that you can use a selective line of cannabinoids. They don't produce the psychotropic effects, and they actually inhibit the dopamine being released from the reward pathways uh, induced by things like uh, cocaine or even morphine. So we published a recent paper showing that if we combined something like morphine plus these unique cannabinoids, they actually will inhibit morphine's ability to release dopamine, and it even blocks the ability of uh, morphine to produce its rewarding effects, suggesting that if you combine the two, you'll actually reduce this this, uh, opiate-induced rewarding activity that we're seeing. Listen to this and all Arizona Science Conversations at azpm.org slash Arizona Science. I'm Leslie Tolbert.